How can a Catholic be obedient when church leaders promote same-sex blessings, shut down authentically Catholic liturgies, and continually undermine the faith? That's what we're going to talk about today on Crisis Point. Hello, I'm Eric Sammons, your host, Editor-in-Chief of Crisis Magazine. Before we get started, just want to encourage people, hit that like button to subscribe to the channel, let other people know about it. We always appreciate that. Also, you can follow us on social media at Crisis Mag, and subscribe to our email newsletter at uh, just go crisismagazine.com, fill in your email address, and we'll send you our articles every day right to your inbox. Okay, so we have a return guest today, one of my favorites, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. I'm going to read his bio just because I like to, even though I think most people know who he is. It's impressive enough. I think I want to read it anyway. He's a full-time writer and public speaker whose work is seen at websites and periodicals such as New Liturgical Movement, 1 Peter 5, Crisis Magazine, Arate Chaley, Catholic Family News, and Latin Mass Magazine. Dr. Kwasniewski has published extensively in academic and popular venues on sacramental and liturgical theology, Catholic social teaching, issues in the contemporary church, and the history and aesthetics of music. He's also a composer whose sacred choral music has been performed around the world. He's the author and editor of many books. They've been translated in more than 20 languages. And I like to say, knowing how many books Dr. Kwasniewski's editor or pub, uh, written is a moving target. You never know when he comes on the podcast if something has been published since I asked him a week or two ago. But two of his latest are Ultramontanism and Tradition, which he edited. And I will say I'm one of the uh, writers in here. It, it's a great, uh, it's on the role of papal authority in the Catholic faith, which we're going to talk about today. Also, uh, Bound by Truth, which he wrote, didn't just edit. Uh, authority, obedience, tradition, and the common good. And really, in a sense, the two of them, I think they work together. They work together, uh, and we're going to kind of talk about all these issues. But we're also going to apply them in this conversation to some of the issues going on today, because I think that's what really matters. So anyway, with that long introduction, welcome to the program, Peter. Thank you so much, Eric. It's always good to talk to you. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're just you're producing great work. Also, I didn't even mention... Tell us, uh, I'll put a link to it, but tell us the uh, Substack uh, address to go to see your writings. Right. Well, it's it's just, uh, it is traditionsanity.substack.com. Um, okay. The Substack itself is called Tradition and Sanity. Um, and I've been publishing since last April, April 2023. Um, it's going extremely well. I've, I've published 100 and something articles there. I've got uh, almost 5,000 subscribers. It's definitely become a, a major platform for me. Yes. When you first announced it, I, I'm just going to be honest. I was like, oh, shoot. Does this mean he's never going to write for 1 Peter 5 or for Crisis anymore? And I admit, <laughs> Tim Flanders and I were both like, oh, no, this would be the worst. But fortunately, you still you still do write at other places as well. But we very much support your sub stack. We're not like, you know, competition or anything like that. It just, we were kind of like, oh no, because you're, you're, I mean, you're definitely one of our favorites. And so, uh, but yeah, encourage you. I mean, you write so much. It's like, you can't be held down by just one website. You have to be in many places. Yes, I did. I did feel as if, you know, as the years went on, I felt as if it would be good to have one platform where I could share my thoughts and develop them over a long period of time with a certain audience that really wanted to read what I had to say. Um, so I would, I would, I mean, anybody out there who, who enjoys my work should definitely check out the Substack. They can subscribe for free or they can take out a, a paid subscription, you know, however, whatever they'd like to do. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I encourage people to do that. I mean, what's it going to hurt to check it out for free at first? And then when you realize how much right. you love it, then you can be a paid subscriber as well. So, 
So I, I want to, we're talking about today, I mean, a, a topic that you talk about a lot, and I think it's very, I think it's the most important one, frankly, as a Catholic today, and that's this whole area of kind of our role as Catholics. I'm, we're talking particularly lay Catholics, but we'll talk about priests and bishops as well. And like, how do we obey? How do we be good, submissive Catholics that we've always been taught to be when the people in authority are not being obedient to what who and submissive to the, who they're supposed to be obedient and submissive to? Yes. Uh, and so yes. kind of how's that, how's that work? And so I kind of want to start it off with, I think, something that is underlying all of our discussions as Catholics, and that is this whole I idea of challenging the Pope. It just... Mm -hmm. I think if you have a good Catholic sense, a good Catholic ethos, that should automatically give you, uh, this is a theological term, the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it should yeah. make you kind of recoil. <laughs> and so w what is that proper way of, of I mean, because you and I are well known publicly for challenging the Pope. What right do we have to do that? And kind of what are the challenges to that? But also what are the potential like what are the potential mm -hmm. pitfalls going the, too far, and what are the 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 the, the fears of, of like not going far enough? I guess for lack of exactly, better. yeah. No, it's it's a it's a it's a fabulous question. Um, it is the question, as you said, of the moment. Um, I don't think it's always going to be the question of the moment. I think that there have been periods in church history where authority and obedience have worked generally fairly well together. And there will be periods, I'm confident, unless the world comes to an end, which is in God's hands, I think there will be periods again where, where that relationship is not as vexed and as frustrating as it is right now. But the reality is this. Um, obedience is not a black and white subject. It's not a switch that's either on or off. So that you're either always, you're, you're obedient unthinkingly, blindly to whatever authority dictates, or you're a rebel, right? I mean, th these are, that's the way that some people almost present this, this situation. But as I talk about, especially in Bound by Truth, um, every authority beneath God, God alone is supremely good. He alone is always true, always right, always to be obeyed, no matter what. But every authority under God, every created authority is inherently fallible. I mean, this is, you know, and the church is clear about the conditions under which an authority, well, in, in the, it's the, the Pope particularly, un, the circumstances under which he is infallible. But it's clear from even Vatican I that most of what the Pope says and does is not going to fall into that narrow category, right, of universal teaching on faith and morals that is binding on everybody under pain of sin. Um, and so any created human authority um, is measured by God's authority. That means by the eternal law, by the natural law, by the divine law. Um, and we have to, we have to um, basically, we should have a disposition of humility, docility, receptivity um, towards authority. That should be our default position until and unless there is a flagrant violation of what the authority is supposed to be doing. Right now, is it possible for us to recognize when authority is uh, flagrantly going out of bounds? Well, the answer of the entire Catholic tradition is yes, we can recognize when that's happening. We can recognize it when it's happening on the part of civil authorities, presidents, prime ministers, kings, whoever they are, but also when priests, bishops, and popes are also going outside of the remit, outside of the boundaries of what they're supposed to be doing, when they actually turn against the good of the faithful in a particular case. And this has happened throughout church history. It's not something that happens every day, thanks be to God. I mean, our Lord has set up, 
you know, structures of authority that, as I said before, generally function well, but they function well when there are virtuous men in those offices. When you have vicious men in, in offices of authority, then they can abuse their authority and, and they have done so in, in history. Um, and so part of the purpose of my research and, and the, the 26 authors who are present in this anthology, you know, Ultramontanism and Tradition, is to carefully go through the annals of Catholic history and say, look, here are some situations where uh, papal authority was overweening, where it overreached, where it violated the rights of other bodies within the church or other individuals within the church, and where people respectfully stood up against it, you know, and said, no. Grossetest is a great example, Bishop Robert Grossetest, who, when the Pope tried to impose his nephew uh, on, on uh, gave to give his nephew a canonry at Lincoln Cathedral, basically nepotism, Robert Grostas wrote back and said, I refuse to allow this. I will not allow this. I don't care who you are, basically. I, I, I refuse to allow this. And he said, I refuse to allow it because of my respect for your office. I will not let you abuse your office in this way. Now, okay, now here's a, a, a pushback I want to have. There's, there's a bit of a difference between like a one-time thing and a, and a ongoing thing. So for example, St. John Henry Newman, when he was alive, he didn't really think the, uh, the, the Vatican should have temporal, the Pope should have temporal authority. He kind of leaned against it and thought that that didn't, in his time, he thought that didn't help the uh, church for him to have temporal authority. But of course, Pope Pius IX at the time was very, and then Leo Thirteenth was very, very much thought that the Pope should have um, this temporal authority. So in this case, we see John Henry Newman, a saint who, who's kind of resisting the, the, the Pope on this. But it's not like, that's like a one-time thing. It's like one issue. It's obviously prudential, things like that. But what we're saying, and I think both you and I have basically said this, is we're kind of advocating a resistance to what popes are saying going back for decades that Pope mm -hmm. Paul the sixth, Pope, even John Paul, the second, whom I know both of us uh, admire in many admired in many ways, but also have, we have serious criticisms of a CC meeting, things like that. And of mm -hmm. course, uh, even Pope Benedict a little bit, but especially of course, Pope Francis. And isn't there something to be said for the, the Catholic idea? Like, okay, yeah, you can disagree here. You can disagree there. But now we're talking about disagreeing with the fundamental program of the Vatican for five to six decades. And that sure. seems to be a lot deeper, a lot more disobedient to, 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 to kind of use that term than just saying, OK, on, on these one off situations. Right. So but I think I mean, I'm glad that you put the objection that way. But I think the objection very much overstates the situation, because, uh, first of all, what you see when you study in detail the last six decades is a great deal of contradictory policy, a great deal of hemming and hawing, of going to the left and to the right, of Pope saying, do this, but then doing the opposite themselves or appointing people who do the opposite. You know, So it's not as if it's so easy to see what is the overall plan or program that we're supposed to be following uh, in, in this period. Um, obviously with something like the Novus Ordo, yes, they all support it, but they support, they support it in different ways and for different reasons and with different angles. You know, John Paul II and Benedict XVI were trying to take it in a more traditional direction. Francis, obviously, by his own example um, and by what he tolerates, you know, sees it being taken in a very different direction, an anti-traditional direction. Um, so I, I think that it's, um, it's very disorienting to be a Catholic right now because it's not at all clear how we're supposed to, to hold all these things together. Take Vatican II, right? Sacrosanctum Concilium says, clearly many things that nobody is following 
right? Are we all, I mean, is Pope Francis disobedient to Vatican II? He thinks he's the paragon of obedience to Vatican II, but he isn't. And you can actually, I mean, Serafino Lanzetta, Father Lanzetta, wrote this book called Super Hank Petrom, uh, which is also something I would recommend. It's a, it's a really excellent treatment of the papacy, specifically of whether Francis himself is um, living up to the task of the successor of St. Peter, and in particular, whether he is obedient to the Second Vatican Council. And Father Lazetta proves in case after case after case that Pope Francis contradicts the Second Vatican Council, right? So you see what I mean? This is, It's not as if the popes have this monolithic perfectly consistent plan that they're saying you should do this and all of us are saying no we refuse to do it we rebel right it's more like no we actually want to be obedient to all of the things that catholics are supposed to be obedient to in a time when our church leaders themselves are very inconsistently obedient to what they should be obedient to right yeah, so that's, it, yeah isn't that's there a danger i like playing devil's advocate here um <laughs> isn't there a danger though that um we get this mentality. I mean, the, the, the tag that's placed on people like us is recognize and resist. And I think it goes so far. It's not the greatest, but it's not terrible either. Isn't there a, a, a danger, though, that basically resist becomes kind of our, our, our meaning of our Catholic faith? Okay. Basically like, okay, let's just, you know, if Pope Francis says it, that means I'm against it uh, or, or whatever the case may be. Isn't there some, like, how do we... Uh, protect ourselves from that danger of just always being, because I've actually seen this where, like, I'll say something nice about something Pope Francis does. And it's like, immediately I get people like, oh no, he's wrong. And it's like, they just want to be sure. like, no, he's wrong about everything. Yeah. How yeah. do we kind of keep ourselves from that danger? Well, okay. So, so here's the other thing that, that should be said is that we need to make distinctions between various popes. All the popes from Second Vatican Council onwards are not, are very different from each other. Um, and Pope Francis is singularly bad. I mean, I, I, I don't really, we, this program is not the place for us to sort of hash out all of the ways, that we, but I mean, it's hundreds of ways in which Pope Francis has uh, contradicted the faith, has undermined um, the, the, the pastoral life of Catholics. Fiducia Supplicans is just the latest in a long line of scandals. Um, and so Francis is an unprecedented example of a tyrannical pope. I agree with Henry Sear, who calls him the dictator pope. He is. And so to have a, to, I think you wrote an article, or maybe somebody on Crisis wrote an article about, should we give Francis the benefit of the doubt? Yeah, right? that was me. Yeah. And, and, and basically you said, well, we all tried to give him, or most of us, I, I certainly did, tried to give him the benefit of the doubt for as long as we possibly could hold out. For me, that was a couple of years. It was, it was about a couple of years where I was able to square every circle kind of sort of. And then it finally, it was just like, okay, forget it. This is not working. We can see where he's coming from, what his agenda is. And that's only been vindicated over the past 11 years. You know, those of us who early on said something is very fishy here, um, you know, and not the fisherman's fishy. You know, this is this is a bad kind of fishy, a smelly kind of fishy, right? Uh, well, we were we were vindicated. We have been vindicated by that. Um, so I think with with Francis, there is more of a reason to be at this point basically skeptical and suspicious of almost everything he does and says. Um, particularly as his pontificate winds down, he seems to become more and more radical. Um, but uh, and so what I would I would put it this way. Uh, you know, there's this famous saying that Leo XIII quotes, um, I think it's in Satis Cognitum, he says something like, you know, you have to beware the drop of poison 
that uh, you know in the in the glass of water. That's not exactly how he puts it, but I can't remember the the, the exact phrasing right now. But you know, if, if Francis says something true, okay, fine. I mean, a broken clock is right twice a day. I mean, of course, he's going to say certain things that are true. Um, he's not simply a machine of error, right? But there is so there are so many problems in Francis's teaching that I would never, for example, cite him as an authority. There are many, many other authorities that are far better than Francis to quote on any given topic, you know, whether it's pro-life or, you know, I mean, abortion or marriage or whatever the case might be. I'm not going to quote some nice thing that Francis says about marriage when he wrote Amoris Laetitia. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Right. Um, but as for the, the, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, so I think the, I mean, I, I don't really want to go down this completely here, but I feel like it has to be addressed then why do you recognize him as Pope? Because that's obviously a lot of people we know and respect and, and friends and people, you know, have said, well, because of this kind of total picture yeah, yeah. Uh, that you basically just described, then why do we continue the, the, the kind of fa uh, facade that people would, some people would claim for us of, of recognizing him as actually the Pope? Like what purposes he, you know, if he's the Pope, but we're basically saying everything he does, we, we can't give him the benefit of the doubt. Is he, should we even accept him really as the Pope? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that what we, so this book, by the way, is really helpful on this subject because it has um, some essays at the beginning, like, um, uh, you know, what may be done about a heretical Pope by a Dominican friar um, on the question of a heretical Pope by Bishop uh, Schneider on papal resignation and papal heresy and so forth. Um, in other words, these these writers go through the very difficult question, which has been talked about for centuries in the church. It's not some kind of new question. What Can you have a pope who's a heretic, uh, either a material heretic? Can he ever think heretically um, and believe uh, error or form a formal heretic? Um, you know, can we have that situation? And if we do have that situation, what what is there? What can be done about it? Right? Does the Pope automatically lose his office? That's a very common position that people have. He just he's lost his office, uh, and we can judge that. We lay people can see that he's a heretic, and therefore he's not the Pope. Um, but I think that what th this book presents consistently for many authors the position that no individual Catholic is authorized to make a final decision about whether a Pope is a heretic or not. The, in in church history, when the rare cases where papal heresy or collusion or complicity with heresy has arisen, it's been adjudicated by a subsequent pope or by a council, right? It, it has to be, the pope is not judged by anyone on earth, but his actions and his words can be evaluated, and certainly by those who, who are his peers, either other popes or bishops in council. They can be his, you know, after he's dead, certainly, they can be evaluated and sifted through. Um, and this is what, you know, I hope and pray for. But if you have a hierarchical church where somebody is clearly recognized as holding a certain office and there's a universal consent that he holds that office, it doesn't matter what your worries or anxieties about him are. You still have to acknowledge that he, in a sort of raw material sense, he holds that office. He's sitting in the chair, right? He's the one, he's the one who's in the, the office that says Pope, you know, that, you know, knock on the door. He's the one who's in there, right? In that very basic, bare material sense, he's the Pope. He might, as it, it could it could turn out in in you know in the future people look back and they say yes he was acting as the pope but um you know much of what he taught is no is not to be accepted and i think we can already already tentatively reach that conclusion for ourselves at least as an operational principle um but it would be absurd to think that any individual catholic could decide who is holding an office or who is not holding an office right i think that's that's not that's not going to work yeah and i 
I, I can't remember. I, I'm not sure if I've said this publicly, but uh, you know, I, I do. Th- I've told numerous people this is that, like, in the future one day, I think that a, a future council, a future pope, will probably declare like the Francis papacy, the acts of Francis papacy, null and void. I mean, just kind of like let's just kind of all of it just throw it out into the trash bin. I don't think they'll ever say though he wasn't the pope. I think first of all, I just think that because you'd open up such a can of worms if you did that. Because mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you've just you've just made the precedent that a future pope can just say a past pope was never the pope. And so yes. every single pope's authority comes into question at that point. Right. You say, oh well future pope is just going to say this guy's not pope. Yeah. So I think that it'd be it, it might be a selective null and void on his acts, but right. the point is is that it would basically be like, let's just move on from this and right. go a different direction. I agree. I agree. That would be the best scenario. But the other thing I want to point out here is this. Pope Francis certainly has has taught an enormous amount in the sense that he issues documents and he gives speeches and, and what have you. But he has never even come close to um, invoking his solemn authority as the successor of Peter to bind and loose, to, to define in a matter of faith and morals. So I, I, I'm, grad, I'm not... I'm not a minimalist about the papacy in the sense that I that I would say, and people have accused me of this, that I would say the only thing you have to obey is when a pope has a de fide infallible statement. No, that's that's an absurdity. There is such a thing as the ordinary papal magisterium, and you are supposed to normally, in normal circumstances, you should obediently accept that. You should have religious assent of, of, of mind to that teaching. Um, but it's also true, and Ed Fazer is particularly good on this question, and he's, he's, he's in this anthology, Ultramontanism and Tradition, on this point. Um, he's very good at pointing out the opposite of infallible is fallible. So actually, the ordinary papal magisterium can be an error. We shouldn't assume it to be sort of habitually in error, and I don't think there's any case in church history where you can say, oh, this pope was habitually in error, but Francis is pretty darn close to that that situation. That is, there are many, many, many erroneous things in, in the ordinary teaching of Pope Francis that have to be resisted. This is not a typical situation. This is not like our default position. This is this is like a, a, a fire uh, a fire brigade emergency, right, is what we're dealing with right now. That's why I do think it's unprecedented in so many ways. We don't have cases in church history where we can look back and say, oh, what we're dealing with under Francis is what they dealt with in this century or that century. No, no, we've never had a situation as bad as this before. Um, by the way, I don't think that makes Francis absolutely the worst pope. I just think he's one of the worst popes. Um, the other quick point I want to make is this. You talked about sort of having an attitude of resistance for decades. Um, I think I think a better parallel is the Renaissance papacy, right? The, this, which uh, Timothy Flanders has called the second pornocracy, and I think it's right. a good way of putting it. The first pornocracy was in the Saeculum Obscurum in the 10th century. The second was in the Renaissance, leading up to the Counter Reformation, uh, or prior to the Counter Reformation, and then finally the third pornocracy, which is what we're dealing with today. Um, in in this lead up to the Renaissance, basically the the late medieval or early Renaissance church was extremely corrupt, right, at all different levels. And that's why we had various proto-Protestant revolts finally culminating in 1517 Martin Luther and then every, you know, all hell broke loose after that point. That was not something that came out of nowhere. That was a response to the deep corruption in the Catholic Church. It was a bad response. Uh, and the Catholic Church made the right response in the Counter-Reformation by reaffirming her doctrine and her discipline and by, you know, by, by pursuing sanctity. But there were decades of bad popes, worldly, 
worldly popes, right? And any serious Catholic at that time lamented that situation and said, this is a very bad thing for the Catholic Church. These men are unworthy of their office. We acknowledge them to be pope. We pray for their conversion, but we do not admire them. And we we keep our we keep a certain distance from from them, from the way they're living. And Savonarola, I think, is a great example of this. As you know, many Dominicans consider him to be a saint. He strongly resisted Alexander the Sixth, right? Yeah. Now, okay. So, as as we're recording this, uh, Pope Francis is actually in the hospital again. Uh, yeah. His health is not good. Uh, he's old, and so it, there's a real good chance that he won't make it through 2024, just because you know that that's what the natural way of things. Well, I guess I was just you personally, like when the next pope happen, comes, and let's just say it's a a pope that uh, they pick a cardinal who is, you know, and it's not Cardinal Burke, um, but it's not necessarily uh, Cardinal Fernandez either. Uh, it just, you know. Um, pope Tuco the first. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, but like, you know, it's somebody kind of in the middle, maybe ideologically more liberal towards France like that. How do you think should be the proper attitude of Catholics when this new pope starts? Because, you know, we said that there's been each pope before has been different. We gave benefit out to Francis for years. And then finally, we realized it's just not working at what, you know, kind of what should be a Catholic's attitude for a, the next pope. Assuming he's not somebody who's like already known to be a hero of the faith, the Cardinal Seurat or something like that. But is just a, yeah. you know, somebody unknown or kind of known to be a little bit maybe a, a Francis type person. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, obviously, I, we should give him the benefit of the doubt. We really should. I mean, that's that's what we owe to any human being who takes office for the first time. You, it's true you could look at their record and say, oh, he's done this and he's done that and he's met with communists and, you know, he shook the hand of a Freemason and whatever. You can look at all that in the past, but every time somebody takes up a new office, there's a new grace of office, a new charism of office that they receive. God gives them the opportunity to live this office well and virtuously. I, I think we have to have a supernatural perspective. I agree with Roberto de Matei about this, that when a man is elected Pope, God is offering him huge graces, right? And there have been examples in church history to go back again to, we have to study church history, but there have been cases where rather lukewarm and secular cardinals have been elected pope and they've suddenly revved up to the office and they've you know they've started acting as reformers right how did that happen where did that come from that's grace grace is transformative grace is powerful we've all seen that in our own lives you know when when god has pushed us from one level to the next through some kind of conversion experience and or conversion uh, grace of conversion right so i think we we owe the benefit of the doubt to anyone who takes up a new office that's the simple point um and, you know, let's say it's somebody like, I really believe, and so I think that George Weigel believes this, and Edward Penton, and other people who have done very deep analysis of the College of Cardinals, right, that the next pope is not going to be a Francis clone. He's not going to be a Francis II. I hope he doesn't take the name Francis II, but maybe he could as a, as a sort of curveball to, you know, surprise everybody that I'm not like the first Francis. Uh, there, there have been precedents for that, too, in church history, where the same papal name has been like a radically different kind of person, you know. Um, but I think that it's much more likely to be someone like Cardinal Zuppi. Um, I'm not saying he in particular is the most popabile, but but he's an example of he's a politician, he's a diplomat, he hangs out with communists, okay, but he also celebrates pontifical, solemn pontifical traditional vespers in Rome. He has no axe to grind against the traditionalists. He he seems to have the attitude of a true liberal. Whatever floats your boat, you know, 
let a thousand flowers bloom, right? I think that's much more likely to be the kind of person that the Cardinals will want to elect next time. And, and that, that kind of person could then be an ally for us, even if we disagree with his liberalism. Um, he, he could be the kind of Pope who might give us a Sumorum Pontificum 2.0. So I, I think we shouldn't burn our bridges, you know, from the, from the start. Yeah, I think that's that's wise counsel because I kind of lean towards the same thinking. I'm not an expert on like the whole college. I don't follow the whole like who's papable, all that stuff. But at the same time, it just seems to me there's such a widespread, uh, we'll say frustration among bishops with Francis, how he goes about doing things. Not necessarily with what he believes. I mean, I think a lot of bishops and cardinals might, might agree with them, but how he goes about it. They just, he causes exactly. so many problems for bishops. I mean, the, the, the best example, of course, is Traditionus Custodis, where he just like caused problems for bishops is all that does. Right. Because now right. all of a sudden these people who were basically quiet, kind of off to the side, gave their tithes and, and kind of kept to themselves. Now, all of a sudden, now he has to now that the bishop, local bishop has to battle with them. I mean, and so I could see the next pope. They want to pick somebody like might be ideologically close, close to uh, Francis. But personality wise and management style is just like, OK, we're going to let things kind of simmer down a little bit because it's just a nightmare, uh, practically speaking, for for uh, the bishops and the cardinals. So, yes, yeah. that's right. We also have to recognize that <clears throat> the traditionalist movement, which began really in 1966 with the founding of Una Voce, um, it, it, it began then because. Uh, as you as you know, after uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium was was approved by most of the bishops of Vatican II in 1963, right away Paul VI set in motion the liturgical reform, with having in view something like the Novus Ordo. He he and Bonini were very much set on that, even though that's not what the Council Fathers had just voted on, um, and. Uh, and they started making changes pretty quickly, 1964, 1965, 1966. And so the Catholics who loved the Latin Gregorian mass were already, you know, in a panic and already scandalized by what was happening in the mid 1960s. So that's really where the traditionalist movement began, even before years before the Novus Ordo came out. When the Novus Ordo came out in 1969, they were even more alarmed and even more scandalized because that was a much more radical step than already what had been done. Um, and so the point I want to make is under John Paul II, Paul VI himself, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, they all increasingly opened up access to the traditional rites of the church. But there was never a lot of support on their part. It was more, it was more like a toleration or an opening up of a space. And the bishops themselves were the ones who had to, to do the heavy lifting. And some were generous and some were stingy, right? And so the point is, whoever the Pope is going to be in the future, traditionalists will still have a lot of grassroots on the ground work to do to build up traditional communities, build up chapels, you know, buy the vestments, get the priests trained, you know, educate, 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 right? We have to keep doing that. We're, we're not, I, I mean, it would take an absolute huge divine intervention and miracle to end up with a traditional Pope at, at this point in time. We might get one 20 or 30 years from now, maybe even sooner, if God is 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 more merciful to us than we deserve. But, um, but I mean, to get a really traditionally minded Pope is going to take somebody who's young right now, 
reaching the age of 75, you know, and but having these more traditional ideas. Like we meet with young clergy, all the young clergy are, are conservative or traditional, right? But they're very far away from being bishops or popes, you know? So it's, it's we have a lot of work to do regardless of who the pope is. Yeah, let's just talk about that, the, the, um, the situation with the Latin mass, with traditionus custodis. And what we've seen is, of course, that came out, was that 2019? It feels like it's forever. I think that's what year it came out. Wasn't it like mm -hmm. five years ago? Or was it, I feel like it was before COVID, 20, right? Yeah. No, no, it was 2021. 2021, exactly. Sorry. Okay, yeah, 2021 yeah. was after COVID. Yeah, I remember that now. Okay. So because, yeah, okay. Anyway, um, what we see is, like, we've seen waves of what, of bishops responding to it. Like, there was the first wave of the the ones who were ideologically completely against traditional mask kind of cracked down. Then we saw, but a lot of them just kind of let it go. And then we see another wave where all, you know, someone would start like cracking down on ad orientment at Novus Ordo kind of weirdly and things like that. We're seeing, mm -hmm. a, I feel like an, another wave this year. Yeah. And yes. it really seems to be kind of stepping up. I've, uh, we know publicly, we know of, like, for example, in Austin, Texas, the cathedral mass is being um, shut down. I actually have an article of crisis coming out uh, this week from a, a woman who attends that, 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 uh, that mass. And then now we just heard that, um, the Archbishop, uh, the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, Cardinal Nichols is, is shutting down, not allowing the church mass for the, the Tridium masses this Easter for the first time. This is the first time it won't be in since like the nineties, I think. And so we're seeing this. And also I've heard that I, I, I just from, I can't re, you know say where or anything like that, but that some other dioceses are getting ready to also clamp down. And they mm -hmm. explicitly, the word is, it's because the Vatican is putting very hard pressure on them. You've got to do this. And yes. I've heard, you know, I heard, hear different things. And the, I know the knee-jerk thing is to get angry with the bishops who go, go along with this. And I'm not saying you shouldn't on some level. But I've heard also that, like, some bishops, what they're trying to do is they're trying to work out something to keep the Vatican relatively pacified while still keeping at least a traditional at mass here or there. And, and their thinking is that, I mean, this is bishops who are close to the age of retirement or have already reached it. And their thinking is they can help influence who the next bishop after them will be. And you know, there's all these like different things. So I kind of just want to get your, your thoughts on the lay of the land right now when it comes to the implementation of traditional custodis, how bishops are reacting and, and kind of what's going on with that. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I think that the, um, I think you're right. First of all, there is a new wave uh, coming along and the Vatican um, is not, they're not very savvy when it comes to media relations in general, but I think they have picked up well enough by now that every time they issue some kind of document from the top down that says everybody has to do this, it creates a firestorm of protest. So they're not using that strategy anymore. You know, after Cardinal Roach issued his rescript, you know, whenever that was last a year ago or something, um, you know, he, I think what they've figured out is we just need to send the papal nuncio or somebody who represents the Vatican to various bishops, sit down in person and say, look, there's no arguing about this. You are going to do this, 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 and this. Remember Bishop Strickland, you know, or just something like that, right? I mean, that's, that's really all they have to do. And if you have, I'm sorry to say it, but the big crisis in the hierarchy of the church right now is spineless bishops. They, they don't, they don't stand up for the truth. They don't stand up for the rights of the faithful. Um, they don't stand up for anything, it seems, right? I mean, whether it's secular pressure or, or pressure coming from the Vatican. Um, and I think part of the problem is that they're not very, I mean, they, they have internalized for such a long time, this, 
it's a kind of ultramontanism, but it's more like a bureaucratic corporate mentality, right? Where we all have to just follow company policy. That's in a way, that's what seminarians are. It's drilled into them from the first day they enter seminary is we are company men. We all act together. We think together. We speak together. You know, we follow our orders. It's like a military model, but with, with no, but with, a, with automatons, with no room for discernment or discretion or, you know, or exceptions or whatever. Right. And since the bishops are sort of the most polished versions of those people who have the bureaucratic corporate mentality, right? They're, they're just not, it seems they're almost not capable morally of saying, you know, thank you, thank you, uh, Nuncio, for, for letting me know that. I'll take that to prayer and discern, you know, and I'll, I'll pray about that some more and we'll come up with the right decision for my people, for my flock. You know, thanks for visiting me. Um, they're, they're not really able to stand up and especially they don't seem to be able to coordinate among themselves. I'm convinced that if, let's say, 20 bishops, and I think that there could be that many in the United States, 20 bishops got together who were all very much in favor of keeping the Latin Mass alive and well in their dioceses, if they all got together and had a common policy and said, this is what we're going to do, we're all going to stick together, maybe even publicly, right, come out and, in that way, um, is the Vatican going to sack all 20 of them? I mean, what 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 is what's going to happen? You know, there's there is strength in numbers, and that seems, it seems like that just isn't, um, in their thinking. I've also said that about diocesan priests, right? There are certain dioceses where you have maybe 10 or 15 priests who celebrate the Latin Mass, and it's being taken away from all of them. Why don't they all get together and stand up together and say, no, we're not going to accept this. All of us are retiring. We're all leaving the diocese if you if you take the Latin Mass away from us, right? I, anyway, I, I in Bound by Truth, I argue in defense of this kind of of, of move, you know, yeah, it's, it's, but I think you would acknowledge it is a difficult one because at, nobody wants to be the first one because the first one's the one who gets, you know, uh, shot yes. down. I mean, it gets yes. the Strickland treatment and yes. nobody wants that to be the case. I mean, obviously, that's why they have to act together. That's my right. point is that then there isn't the first one who's shot down. Now, I suppose if 20 bishops got together, then the Pope would say, you know, find out who's the bishop behind all of this and let's sack him, right? So, I mean, I'm not saying that it would be somehow like a bulletproof vest, right? But it, come on, you know, the Catholics, at the end of the day, the Catholics who are attending the traditional Latin Mass are some of the most faithful, dedicated, hardworking, generous Catholics, pious Catholics, big families, vocations, right? How in the world can any sane person justify, how can any believer in Christ justify targeting these people and taking away from them, not just any old liturgy, like a charismatic guitar mass or whatever, but taking away from them the immemorial liturgy of the Roman church, the one that most of our saints prayed and were sanctified in. This is such an absurdity. It reaches the height of absurdity. And I think that people who are willing to swallow that absurdity, that is, who are willing to say, oh, sure, it doesn't matter what this rite is, how venerable, how immemorial, how holy, how saint saturated it doesn't matter what the pope says goes they are nominalists they're legal positivists they have no sense of of the truth of of goodness of beauty in itself right it's all just about what the great leader dictates well i'm sorry that sounds like that sounds like north korea okay or china this doesn't sound like the catholic church it doesn't sound like any human or humane society right yeah and it's it does come back to what you said spinelessness because i think 
I think most bishops, I'm not talking about the, the ideologues, the Supiches, the Gregories, but most bishops, they know that that the people who attend the traditional Latin mass are exactly as you described them. They're just kind mm -hmm. of all the earth Catholics who are just like doing their, their jobs, they're, they're, they're maintaining the faith, they're, they're having big families, they're producing vocations, all the things that Vatican II wants everybody to do, wanted everybody to do, they're actually right. doing it in real life. And I think they know that, but ultimately <laughs> there's not enough uh, there's not enough of them. And, and in the sense that for a bishop, there's not enough political capital he's willing to spend for that small group. And so mm -hmm. ultimately it's like, I, you know, when I have to balance between, okay, the, the, the corrupt people at the Vatican are telling me this to do to this small group. I mean, it's like, what it's kind of human nature. It's what we do. You, you, you make a scapegoat. It's like, okay, I will take it out. I, I will do what they say to the small group. I know they're fine, but ultimately they're not that powerful. They can't change my, you know, whether or not I'm going to be the bishop or not, or, and they don't, you know, they give money, but still they're probably not that much money that yeah. they give. Yeah. Cause a lot, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of traditionalists don't give to the diocese. And so like they have this, I think in the end, it's just, a, which is spinelessness. I'm not defending, yeah. I'm just explaining kind of the, the thought yeah. process. Yeah, no. And, 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 and I would, I would add here that um, it's really only the bishops who have a deep, appreciation from personal experience of the traditional right and of the communities, the traditional communities, when they have that intimate personal experience, they recognize the value of it. They recognize that it's a, it's a, it's a precious jewel, uh, that it's a powerhouse, um, you know, for renewal in the church. They recognize that they see the young people who are drawn to it. You've probably noticed lately, there's this rash of articles about Gen Z, you know, and how they're being drawn to tradition in this way or that way. Right. And often in weird forms, we know that, but but often enough, they're drawn towards Catholic tradition, specifically traditional Catholicism, right? It's a powerful tool for evangelization. Um, I think there are some bishops who are clued into that. But the other thing you have to wonder is, I mean, really, I agree with you that a lot of bishops, they, they might be having this kind of thinking where they're not really... They're not really trying to shut down the Latin mass as such. They just, they feel pressured by Rome. They feel like they're between a rock and a hard place. They're just trying to placate or whatever. Okay, fine. That might be true of them, but surely there must be bishops who are intelligent enough to recognize that the reason Rome, current the current regime in Rome and people like Supich and McElroy and whatever, the reason they want to shut down the Latin mass communities is because they know that those communities are not in favor of the new religion, of the new church of Pope Francis, right? Of the globalist, uh, you know, liberal, progressive, um, new world order type church that Francis is very much behind. Um, and so th they know that these are the pockets of either explicit resistance like somebody like me, or implicit resistance just by the fact of people going to this old liturgy and hearing Orthodox preaching and having large families. These people are seen as enemies of the development of doctrine of the God of surprises that these that these people apparently believe in. I don't really know what they believe in ultimately, but it seems like at least superficially that they believe in some kind of new version of Christianity. And so they have to get rid of the old version of Christianity, right? Um, so that's that's very much what what is driving all of this. It's not about fidelity to Vatican II. It's not about obeying the Novus, uh, you know, adhering to the Novus Ordo. It's about stamping out the traditional Catholic way of life and way of belief. That's what it's about. Yeah. And I think, honestly, I, I think everybody knows that too. Like they yeah. might not say it outright like you just did, but like they kind of know that's it because the whole fidelity to Vatican II thing is such a joke anymore because yeah. I would argue, I would argue very strongly that your typical Latin mass community 
is a better fulfillment of the desires of the council fathers than anything else you're going to see today. I mean, I, oh, just, of course. I mean, just it, it's closer to Sacrosanum Concilium, but it's also yeah. closer to everything else they talk about um, yeah, yeah, yeah. in a lot of yeah. ways. So I, I really, yeah, it's, 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 the, it's the type of Paris they actually, well, they actually foresaw and wanted. Exactly. And, 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 and if, if fidelity to Vatican II is, or infidelity to Vatican II is a reason for shutting churches down, then pretty much every church in the Novus Ordo world should be shut down, right. you know? With the exception of a few uh, unicorn places right. here and there, you know. Right, exactly. Now let's let's shift a little bit to, to lay people in this situation. In that, okay, your your Latin mass gets shut down. I talked about this a little on, on a podcast I did about uh, how they kind of throw you the bone of the Reverend Novus Ordo, but of course yeah. that's not the same thing. But like for a Catholic, a lay Catholic family, what i mean i i just i i will say i have a lot of sympathy like empathy for catholics in that situation in that it's not an easy thing it's not because no. first of all there's not always an easy solution there might not be any latin mass within a couple hours once yours is shut down but also the, the choices between you know a a, a society of saint pius X, a maybe a city of a continent independent chapel uh, maybe there is a reverent uh, Novus Ordo, the, the, the unicorn that we just mentioned nearby. Or maybe there's a Novus Ordo, maybe the, the parish that they're in that loses the Latin Mass, replace it with the Novus Ordo with the same priest and everything. You have a certain attachment to the, the parish and the priest and stuff like that. What advice do you give to, to a, a lay Catholic family in this difficult situation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's as you said, it's a difficult question because... People have different, I mean, we know this from long experience, people have different tolerant toleration levels or tolerance levels, you know. I mean, I, I myself provided music for decades at the Novus Ordo. That's where I got to be intimately familiar with it um, and got to and, and had and was able to contrast and compare it with the traditional rites, which I was also providing music for. So I had this strange, I was living in this strange, almost bipolar world uh, where, you know, in the, in the morning I was singing at the Missa Cantata and in the evening I was singing for the Novus Ordo. And so I, I really had this very intimate, this time of, of close comparison. Um, and so that's where that, that was, that fueled a lot of my writing. Um, and, you know, actually 25 years ago, I could tolerate a lot more then then I, I just didn't know I didn't know as much as I know now I didn't notice as much for some reason you know it's I think when you when you become steeped in the traditional rites of the church you understand the the fittingness and the beauty and the and the the, the and also the doctrinal and moral issues that are at stake in the way we worship all of that stuff becomes more and more apparent to you over time and it and becomes more and more difficult to go back to the Novus Ordo even when it's celebrated rather well because there there are just there are things about it that just start to grate you because you can see oh they changed that why did they change that oh it doesn't seem to be for a good reason you know you you and there's never a good re there's almost never a good reason for the changes that were made it's it's always something like you know lay involvement or women involvement or you know conformity to the modern styles of music or whatever it might be there's always some kind of dubious reason behind these changes and you start to pick up on that especially if you study the matter um, and you don't just use your senses um so i it, it's really difficult to say what people should do but honestly at this point um i say to people look the vatican pope francis made it clear they want to stamp out the latin mass completely 
They really do. They said that. We shouldn't be surprised at what they're doing. They said, we're going to phase this out. And right. when they gave like two-year extensions to this place or that place, we know what that means. It means after two years, very likely the answer is, that's it. Goodbye. Provide a Novus Ordo for these people, you know, and educate them um, or re-educate them. Uh, so I say to people, look, this is a battle over the very identity of Catholicism. It's a battle over the meaning of Catholicism, our connection to truth, which you can find millions of saints who say, you know, or millions, thousands of passages in the writings of the saints where they talk about the normative value of tradition. We do what we do because we inherited it from our fathers, right? They, they did it. It's good for them. It's good for us, right? We don't introduce novelties and so forth. So I think this is not just about my preference. It's my preference to worship this way or that way. It's about a whole way of believing and living as Catholics. And that's what's under attack by the progressives and the modernists. That is very much under attack. If you recognize that to be the case, and I think very many people do recognize that to be the case, then you need to seek out the traditional, a traditional right of the church, Eastern or Western. You should not settle for the Novus Ordo for all of the reasons that we could go into in any number of conversations. Um, you shouldn't settle for that because what you're doing, if you if you if you accept the withdrawal of the traditional right and the substitution of the of the the new right, um, you're basically just throwing in the towel and you're just saying, okay, I give up on this. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fight this anymore. No, go and find a traditional mass. If that means the society, then go to the society. If that means a Byzantine right as at least as a temporary home away from home, then go to the Byzantine right. If it means thinking about relocating, granted that's risky because Latin masses can get shot down anywhere, but there are dioceses that have more Latin masses or that have the Fraternity of St. Peter or the Institute of Christ the King, which for now, for now, seem to be safe, right? Um, and, and much more stable. You know, a fraternity parish has Latin mass right now 365 days a year. Um, you know, so I think that there are hard decisions people have to make. I'm not going to try to make the decisions for them, but I think that the, that that what we must never do is simply surrender altogether the fundamental principle of the traditionalist movement, which is that that we Catholics have a right to their inheritance, and that we have a duty to receive and to cherish and to pass on that inheritance. Now, when we're talking about all this, uh, like resistance and, and like obedience and all this, are you encouraged? about the kind of massive Episcopal resistance to fiducius supplicants that basically, I mean, all of Africa, <laughs> bishops around, and we're not talking about lay people, but bishops around the world have basically just said, we're not going to implement this. Yes. Yes. No, it's very, very heartening. Um, you know, uh, contrary to Michael Lofton, who thinks it's the devil's work, for anybody to reduce, uh, you know, refuse or resist um, fiducia supplicans, I think it's a clear example of the census fidelium that even Pope Francis talks about, although he doesn't seem to understand what he means by that, uh, or he has, a, has a, a notion that's not Catholic. But the census fidelium, right, is the sense that the baptized uh, and well-catechized Catholic has of what is in accord with the will of God, what is in accord with sacred scripture and with sacred tradition, and what is not. And, you know, with, with questions of liturgical tradition, right, they're complicated. There's a lot of subtleties there. You have to learn a lot to understand, like even to get up to speed with the, with the liturgy wars, as you can see it on social media, most people are absolutely clueless about these things. They, they, they don't even know what they're talking about. They say, oh, Pius V invented a mass after the Council of Trent. You know, they, they say the most absurd things. Tim Staples said the other day on Catholic Answers that Pius V 
at the council after the Council of Trent, he created a, a Roman rite and imposed it on everybody. And that's what Pope Francis is doing for us now. I mean, the the, the colossal historical ignorance involved in that is just as unbelievable, right? But but what I'm saying is with liturgical tradition, there's a lot to learn and there are subtleties, and therefore you can understand why not everybody erupted into resistance against Traditionos Custodes. But with Fiducia Simplicans, we're dealing with sodomy. We're dealing with the basic, you know, the commandments of God that are as clear, like as if you want to talk about black and white, this is a black and white issue. Okay, there's no gray area in this whatsoever. And because it was dealing with basic morals, you know, sixth and ninth commandment, bread and butter, you know, nothing simpler than this in the world, right? Um, I mean, the only thing simpler would be if the Pope had said God doesn't exist, you know, or Christ didn't rise from the dead, right? And so because there's this very clear uh, attack on the moral law, the natural moral law and the revealed divine law, that's why there was this explosion, right? The African bishops, no way, even the Belgian bishops, no way, we're not going to do this, you know? And so I, I think it, I think it's a, it's a sign of, and the church's immune system is weak, I, I say right now the church has an autoimmune defici uh, deficiency. I mean, that's very much the case. The church seems to be attacking itself in many ways. But in this case, the immune system worked, right? Those white blood cells, you know, they they, they rallied. <laughs> and thanks be to God for that. Yeah, it, it was kind of funny to watch it in real time because the day it came out, I think it was a week before Christmas, all the usual suspects, and I include myself in this, had their usual reactions. You know, I wrote something very quickly that, that was saying what was wrong with it, and other people like us were people, the, the Michael Loftons and those people were saying, oh, no, it's great, very quickly. And you saw, the, and, and then like, you know, Bishop Schneider and his, um, and I can't remember the name of his bishop, um, you know, he's the auxiliary under, they came out with something the first day saying, no, we're not going to do this. And so it's like, okay, you expect that. And there was here and there a few, and then it just seemed funny because, First, there's like a statement from the African bishop saying, like in very kind of diplomatic language, like, okay, we're not really going to go along with this, but they kind of try to make it as, and then each successive one seems to be more like, and then finally they're just like, no, we're not doing this. We're, we're just rejecting <laughs> this. And yes. you've seen more and more bishops do that. And I think you're right that it's like you would, we would have wished they had done this for tra Traditionus Custodis. But it does kind of make sense because there's been so long brainwashing. I mean, to this day, I bet you there is a sizable number of bishops, bishops who actually think the only difference between the, the Novus Ordo and the traditional Latin Mass is that one is in Latin and one is not. I bet you mm. there are a sizable number of bishops who think that. I know there's like tons of lay people who still think that. I encounter it all the time. But I bet you there are bishops who think that. And of course, if you think that, it does make no sense to keep doing the traditional Latin mass. I mean, it just kind of, you know, oh, they're the exact same thing, just one in a different language. So <laughs> I think, though, you're right, though, with, with this, when you see Father James Martin jump out there and bless a married, married couple, mm -hmm. two men, in a very public way that gets on the New York Times, you know, in the New York Times the next day, and it's obviously all pre-planned, I think that people know, okay, this is a step too far. And I don't think, I don't think Fernandez and Francis realized that they oh, kind yeah. of crossed the line because yeah. they've yeah. always pushed it and kind of keep pushing it, pushing it. And I think they didn't realize they, they jumped this time. Um, yeah. and, and so I do think that was very encouraging. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like when, and I, I feel like Francis, as he gets near the end of his life, he's, he's doing more and more radical stuff, which I, I, I think in a, yeah. in a kind of a, a, in God's way is, is a good thing in the sense that it opens eyes for people to say, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to go along with this. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, you know, it, it's been pointed out for a long time that 
that Christian, so Christianity in, in recent centuries has tended towards moralism. That's, that's a defect. It's tended away from dogma, from, from a concern about right doctrine and orthodoxy or right worship, because orthodoxy means both of those things, towards morality. And the morality is always important, but it's always in, in the bigger scheme of things, Christian morals has been seen as flowing from the doctrine and from the liturgy and supporting those things, right? For example, the reason you want to be a moral person is to be able to participate worthily in mass and receive Holy Communion. That's the way we should be thinking about it. Not, not Christianity is about making me a better person and, oh yeah, I guess I have to go to mass too. You know, it's, it's, so we, we have a very backwards way of thinking about it, but still as a result, people still respond to moral issues, right? To pro-life issue, to the pro-life issue. So when Pope Francis appointed uh, what I forget, Mazukato or whatever the woman's name was, this this radically pro-abortion um, feminist to a pontifical um, um, council for five years, right? That created, rightly so, a scandal. Father Rupnik has created a huge scandal because he sexually abused nuns for many, many years, and many of them. And so these sorts of issues, they, they touch a nerve, right? With everybody, with the common man, they touch a nerve. Um, I just think that it's good in the providential scheme of things for people to see, yes, the Pope and his curia can be, uh, can be gravely in error, gravely in error, uh, at least to the extent of being um, negligent, gravely negligent uh, in, and, and in ambiguity and, and lack of clarity in, in moral teaching so that they can better appreciate the arguments of, say, bound by truth or tradition uh, or ultramontanism and tradition about deviations in doctrine and in liturgy, right? They appreciate the deviations in morals. Now they need to appreciate that there can be deviations in the other two areas, right? Lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. These three things can never be separated from each other, and they always have deep, you know, connections between them, right? So I, I want to finish this up by trying to put this conversation up by putting it in kind of a, I want you to put it in a historical context for Catholics. I think this is one of the things that, first of all, I think helps Catholics a lot when they understand they don't just aren't in the moment. Mm -hmm. And also, I think it's something that we often don't, don't have a knowledge of. And so we, we miss it. And so particularly, I feel like the context of the modern, of, of today's age in the Catholic church is, is we're, we're, um, we're very much part, uh, products of both Vatican I and Vatican II. I mean, those are our councils. So I know people always think about Vatican II, but I think mm -hmm. Vatican I, I think Tim Flanders does a very good job of like <laughs> kind of reminding us of that over at 1 Peter 5. But like, I feel like those two councils, there are, are kind of the most influential things in the church. And so how would you say kind of the, um, the historical moment we're in, put it in perspective, in, in light of those two councils, how Catholics should go about their daily lives, but while keeping the historical sense of where we are in the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a very complicated question. There's yeah. there's 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 like an answer in pages, thirty seconds. No, two hundred pages worth of that in the book Ultramontanism and Tradition. But um, but yeah, I mean, so so I think you could you can think of it this way, right? Vatican One um, was going to talk about a lot of different topics. They had a they had a full outline of topics. And as the political situation degenerated in Rome uh, in 1870, um, and it was looking as if, you know, increasingly as if uh, there was going to be an invasion of, of Rome and that the, the council would be endangered, right, that there was a move to, to basically thrust ahead of all the other agenda points 
uh, the discussion of papal infallibility, which was being pushed very hard by the, the group of people historically known as the Ultramontanes or the Ultramontanists. Um, they, Cardinal Manning of England was kind of the leader of that group. Uh, and they wanted a very strong statement of the Pope's infallibility. And some of them, especially the lay people like Viot, they, they wanted it to be that the Pope is always infallible, right? And that, he, or, or at least he should be treated as such. Um, that, that was definitely not what was passed. A fairly moderate statement of papal infallibility was passed. But the problem is the council ended rapidly after that. Um, and the rest of the agenda was never covered. So it was a very imbalanced ecclesiology. It was like all about the Pope and practically nothing about anything else, right? Um, in, in terms of ecclesiology. Uh, and so we, the, the, the teaching, the letter of Vatican I is, is actually very clear. And this book and my, both of these books really drill into what does it say and what does it not say? And what are the dubia, as Timothy Flanders puts it, of Vatican I? What are the questions that remain open-ended questions on which Catholics can have differences of opinion, right? That's very important to see that there are these open-ended questions. But there was a spirit of Vatican I, just like there was a spirit of Vatican II. Um, and the spirit was one of sort of irresistible, uncontrolled centralization that was already going on in the 19th century, um, and of concentration of all authority and power in the hands of the Pope to the extent that he became seen as, in a sense, like the font from which everything in Catholic life flows, right? And you've talked about this in some great articles. In fact, some of your articles are in this anthology, right? Um, you know, so as if the, the Pope is now sort of the Delphic Oracle for all teaching, you know, he's the, the standard meter bar for all morality, you know, I mean, it's, it's really this, this exaltation of the Pope in a way that is bizarre in, in terms of what he's actually supposed to be and to do. I mean, Newman says, Newman says, if you look at history, the Pope was the final court of appeals. He was the remora or the barrier to novelty. He was basically, you know, he was there in Rome doing his own thing, praying the liturgy most of the time. You know, nobody hardly heard of him. And then there was some controversy, you know, Jansenism. And then the Pope would come in like slam, you know, hammer down all these errors and say, okay, you know, you, you can't hold these things. And then you go back to his quiet, you know, life of prayer. And that's like basically the way that church functioned for century after century after century. Spirit of Vatican I made the Pope the rock star. It made, it made him the central figure of Catholicism, pictures everywhere of the Pope, you know. And so I think that the unintended consequence of the, the, the doctrine of Vatican I was to make everybody constantly look to the Pope as the only reference point for what it is to be Catholic, you know, or, or even what Catholicism is. Not to tradition, even if it's millennia uh, old, you know, not to the liturgy, not to the church fathers, not to St. Thomas Aquinas, but just to the Pope, you know, and if the Pope tells you to look at something else, then you can go and look at that, but only if the Pope tells you to, right? So it's this very weird inflation, hyper-papalism is what I call it, that isn't, in, it's not in Vatican I, but it's, it, it, but it flowed from it by the way people interpreted it and the way they applied it and the assumptions they had and the kind of mythology they built up around the Pope. And this is, the, this is very similar to what happened at Vatican II. It, Vatican II, unlike Vatican I, does actually have problems in it. You know, there are real problems in the formulations of some Vatican II documents. Dignitas Humanae, certainly um, Unitatis Red Integratio on Ecumenism, uh, which doesn't clearly talk about the conversion of Protestants back to the Catholic faith, um, or the Orthodox, for that matter, uh, and and certainly, um, you know, Lumen, uh, sorry, Nostra Aetate about Christians and Muslims adoring the same God, and you know, there are all these problems that Bishop Schneider has pointed out that should actually be corrected or clarified or even condemned in 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 the future. Um, 
So there were problems in the texts of Vatican II, but clearly also here there was a spirit of Vatican II that went way beyond anything uh, in the council and in fact contradicted it rather flagrantly. You know, oh, so Vatican II says we should have mass versus populum in English with popular tunes. No, it said <laughs> nothing about versus populum. It assumed ad oriental would remain. It said Latin should remain the primary language, and it said the Gregorian chant is the principal music. So, what you know, how so the spirit of Vatican II is radically different from Vatican II itself. Um, that much Benedict XVI is right about. So, there's a, a very interesting parallel between the way these two councils played out. And the last point I want to make is Vatican II and its aftermath is really people talk about collegiality and the Society of Saint Pius X is always having. Uh, a, a fit about collegiality. The fact of the matter is, Stuart Chessman talks about this in, in, in the anthology. Vatican II was, was the supreme triumph of Ultramontanism. Why? Because it was driven through by John XXIII. Nobody really thought that a council was necessary. I mean, he was the only one who thought a council was necessary. Pius XII thought about it and then thought better of it. Okay, we know that historically. Um, John XXIII drove through this council um, he was the one who who allowed all of the the schemas that had been written before the council, which were actually very strong, good, solid documents, to be thrown out. That was another ultramontanist movement uh, moment. Um, and then when Paul VI came in, he drove the council in a certain direction. And especially after the council, Paul VI he took the liturgical reform. Just he just went off into the you know into the horizon, into the distance with his own and Benigni's and others' radical plans that that clearly he must have known were not what the Council Fathers had talked about. I've read what the Council Fathers said about the liturgy. They were not talking about the Novus Ordo, right? Um, and so really Vatican II, uh, it talks a lot about the rights of bishops and so on, but we have not seen a, a real recovery of the rights and duties of bishops since the time of Vatican II. We, have, we are still living in an ultramontane church and that is actually the source of a lot of our, our difficulties right now. Well, that was a, a great answer because I knew my question was like, you know, you could, you could spend hours and weeks and months on it, but that, that was a good synopsis. I think that, that really did uh, make sense to me and it kind of like the moment we're in. And I think it's funny because something you said made me realize a parallel. There's a certain parallel between the Novus Ordo, how it came to be after Vatican II and Fiducio's supplicants after the synod because the synod did not want it i mean they, yes. they were like no we're not gonna and then all of a sudden they was like no we're just gonna do it yes and like the same thing like the no sordo came to be and it wasn't what the vatican ii asked for it's not the liturgical yeah. uh because there was liturgical reform in the air and there wasn't yeah. a discussion mm -hmm. but it wasn't what was asked for by the council right clearly well, there's an even, yeah happened there's anyway. an even closer parallel there's an even closer parallel uh as i'm sure you know there was a synod of bishops in 1967 who was given a, a, a preview of what was called then the Missa Normativa, which we now call the Novus Ordo. <clears throat> and that, that the, the preview of the Mass did not receive uh, the two-thirds majority vote of approval that, that, that it would have required. It actually, it, it, it got a bunch of no's, and it got a bunch of, I mean, I think it's scandalous that it received as much approval as it did, but even, even those who approved it often did so in the in the um, technical term juxta modum, which means with reservations, and then they spelled out what the reservations were. Well, guess what? Even though the Missa Normativa did not please the majority of the Synod of 1967, it was hardly changed at all after that. Um, there are people who say, "Oh, it was changed in this way and that way." No, not substantially. It it was still 
the project that Bonini had in mind. Um, and so um, it's it's actually very interesting that you know that the same kind of there's a lot of hypocrisy in the church, right? People talk about collegiality. The Pope talks about synodality all the time, but he he runs the church, you know, like a mafioso. I mean, everybody knows that. Everybody in Rome knows that, right? He's the one in charge. He's the boss. He says what happens. All the rest of his all the rest of his window dressing. It's basically synodality is was an attempt to set up an elaborate window dressing for what a small clique of people in Rome wanted to push forward. And when they saw that they weren't going to get it from the synod, they just said, ah, pff, to hell with it. We're just going to go with this with this anyway, right? Well, you know, Raymond D'Souza, Father D'Souza, wrote that fantastic piece of the Catholic thing uh, about how synodality is dead and buried. Right. And he basically says, do you think anybody's going to believe anymore that synodality is, is, is any more than hot air? when when it was massively contradicted you know on such a hot button item so anyway very interesting yeah it is um i think we're going to wrap it up there but i think you said okay. you know i i appreciate this conversation um i, I think it's great i, I want to make sure people know of course about the the, the two books right now um ultramontanism and tradition the role of papal authority in the catholic faith this is edited by dr kwasniewski uh, a lot of different great writers in there he also threw me in as a bone i think um and then we have uh, written by Dr. Kwasniewski, Bound by Truth, Authority, Obedience, Tradition, and the Common Good. And I will be sure to put uh, links into on the show notes of where to get them. Um, and and I'll, I'm going to ask Peter actually afterwards to make sure I get the right links so we get them in the right place. Uh, we try here not to get people to buy it from the the bookseller that we will that will not be named, but you know <laughs> I, I get that people go there. So anyway, yeah. so uh, I encourage people to buy to, to buy both these books. I think they're great. So um, thank you very much, Peter, for being on the program. Thank you, Eric. It's delight. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Until next time. God love you.